lot of people have tried to draw similarities between Mussolini and Hitler and the use of the terminology like vermin and the, the, the drive that those men had towards autocracy and, and dictatorship. The difference, though, I think makes Donald Trump even more dangerous, and that is he has no philosophy he believes in. He is not trying to expand the boundaries of the United States of America. He's not trying to overcome a neighboring country like Putin is in Ukraine. He is not going for some grandiose scheme of international dominance. All he wants is to look in the mirror and see a guy who's president. All he cares about is selfish self-promotion. That's the only philosophy he has, which makes him even more dangerous because he has actually said out loud that it would be okay to terminate the Constitution to keep him in power. He said this. He actually said those words. And the irony is all of these supposed conservative folks that have populated the Republican Party all stood around and with their with their thumb in their mouth going, well, yeah, okay, I guess so. It's It's bizarre. Welcome back to the Professor Penn Podcast. This is episode number 78, and it will post up on the 30th of November, 2023. Battle lines bewildered. This is David Penn uh, coming off uh, some real good feedback from this past Tuesday night's Martyrs and Icons episode. Learned a lot. Uh, There are times when I get ready to do this, and I think, whoa, what am I going to say? And there's other times when I go, whoa, I've got too much to say. Uh, It was a very lively uh, chat, and I got a lot of um, great feedback and defined uh, what we're going to do next week. I want to say good evening to Susan if you're with us tonight. You put in something about uh, President Reagan being a uniter. And I think if we're going back and looking at heroes and icons, it'd be nice to go back and look at President Nixon, President Reagan, President Bush the first. Take a look at how this current disaster developed over time. And uh, that was a very interesting comment Susan made that she looked at Reagan as a uniter. And I, I'm, I'm going to go back and we're going to look at this together over the next weeks and look at the roots of our current situation because if we don't know where we came from, how will we know where to go? Which is a big part of our educational system now, stripping away our history and at the same time curating it so that we don't get as students a four-street-corner view of what we call history. Why do I say four street corners? And those of you been with me know this is an important metaphor that I use. But for the new viewers, you know, if you have a car accident and we've got four observers from four different corners of the intersection, we're going to get four different reports of what happened. And the investigator must sit down with each of the witnesses to the history, and try to discern what gets closest to the truth. That's why we call Free People Radio truth-seeking media. We're not here to propose a narrative. We're here to look at the narratives and try to 
make some progress beyond the script. Because there is a script, right? There's a script. I got a script, and so do the people that we listen to, like former Senator Claire McCaskill, who appeared on MSNBC. She was um, deposed. She lost her last election, and she became a talking head. And she is a very close friend of Hillary Clinton, and she is a very leftist uh, ex-senator. And she has an axe to grind, and we're going to come back to her. Before we get there, we're going to remind people, every broadcast, precinctstrategy.com. Go to Dan Schultz's site. I said in the last podcast, I'm going to turn it into a short. If you don't vote, and you're not a delegate, and you wake up in prison eight years from now, Don't complain. Die with dignity. We have to be involved because it's a very serious moment in human history, and we've given up our self-governance to a group of people that have no problem letting half the military hardware disappear. You know, these are our leaders. Who are these people? Obviously, there's something going on here that we haven't fully come to grips with yet. And how do we come to grips with it? That's citizen participation, what we call self-governance, self-governance. And, you know, it works. For example, for example, I don't know if you know this, but since President Nixon took the U.S. dollar off the gold standard in 1972, the value of the dollar has declined 98%. That's right, 98%. Got 2% to go until it returns, the dollar returns to its intrinsic value, which is its paper, it's zero. 2% is all we have to go. It's going to get a little disruptive. And how do we stop that? Well, we balance our budget. Oh, it's impossible. No, it's not. If you become a delegate in your party and work to see that American patriots are endorsed to run and they populate our Congress, we actually could save our country's freedom, our country's economy, because when it goes to zero, guess what else goes to zero? I guess if you have nothing, it really won't matter. Like Elliot, he's too young to have a lot in the bank. You know, if the thing goes to zero, I don't think he's going to lose that much. He's shaking his head yes with a smile. Because, you know, but if you have something, if you have anything, like perhaps Social Security coming to me someday, You know, I'm Social Security eligible. That's right. Professor Penn could take it. I'm not taking it. You know, I want to make a deal with my government. You'll like this one. Self-governance. I will forswear. I will reject. And I will not take any money from the government if you'll sign a paper with me that you'll leave me alone. How's that sound? You leave me alone, and I'll leave you alone and we'll go our separate ways. Wouldn't that be some interesting self-governance? And I mean across the whole range of government services. I don't want those services. Now, if you want them, I'm not arguing with you. We have a government. It provides services. That's great. I want to self-govern. I don't want those services. That's just me. I have a vote. I have an opinion. I'm entitled to my opinion. And, you know, on this podcast, 
I don't give a lot of my own personal opinions, or at least I try not to. I try to lay out a, a range of um, historical narratives and policy options, and we try to work on it together. Now, I know we have a certain orientation as a group, but I, my mind is open. I'm not ideological. I was uh, looking on uh, X today, and a very famous commentator was getting down on uh, uh, Wilders and Millet. Tonight's episode is Battle Lines Bewildered. We're going to talk about Wilders. And he was getting down on him and saying, nope, they're just part of the cult. Okay, I'm not of that level of um, dismay. Human consciousness moves forward. It oscillates back and forth. It's thesis and antithesis. I'm not going to dismiss new leadership before it even takes the seat of power. Let's see how it comes out. Let's not prejudge. Let's not judge. Let's see how things come off the deck. This is very important to me, this next part. I, you know, I, it's interesting. I watch when I pray, a lot of people go away. And then other people say, this is the coolest part of the podcast. You know, I do it because when I get up really like this, I'm missing my morning prayers. So, you know, it may sound selfish, right? But I get the opportunity to pray with this great audience. I take it very seriously, and I'm doing it because I need to do it, and I get to do it with you. It's cool. Blessed are you, God and King of all worlds. Thank you for creating the light in the dark. Blessed are you, God and King of all worlds. Thank you for creating me in your image. Blessed are you, God and King of all worlds. Thank you for making me an American. Blessed are you, God and King of all worlds. Thank you for making me free. Blessed are you, God and King of all worlds. Thank you for healing the blind. Blessed are you, God and King of all worlds. Thank you for feeding the people. Blessed are you, God and King of all worlds. Thank you for releasing the bound. Blessed are you, God and King of all worlds. Thank you for raising up the downtrodden. Blessed are you, God and King of all worlds. Thank you for creating the heavens and earth. Blessed are you, God and King of all worlds. Thank you for providing for all my needs. Blessed are you, God and King of all worlds. Thank you for directing my path. Blessed are you, God and King of all worlds. Thank you for our American courage. Blessed are you, God and King of all worlds. Thank you for crowning America with glory. Blessed are you, God and King of all worlds. Thank you for restoring strength to the weary. Forgive us, Father, for we have sinned. Pardon us, our King, for we have willfully transgressed. For you pardon and forgive. Blessed are you, God and King of all worlds, who is gracious and ever willing to forgive. I played this piece with McCaskill in reference to something that went into the live chat about James. I was making a comment about the tongue in one of our uh, loyal listeners referenced James, and I want to read it because it really applies to what Claire McCaskill said at the beginning. If you have time, go back and listen to her again. It's quite a striking bit. 
Not many of you should become teachers, my fellow believers, because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. And let me say, I'm struggling with that because I'm here with you. And the benefit to me is I get up my game. The danger is, boy, I better get that game upped because I'm putting it on the line, right? And I'm, you know, I'm, I'm a work in progress. So thank you for being patient with me. God's not through with me yet. Not many of you should become teachers, my fellow believers, because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. We all stumble in many ways. Anyone who is never at fault in what they say is perfect, able to keep their whole body in check. When we put bits into the mouths of horses to make them obey us, we can turn the whole animal. Or take ships as an example. Although they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are steered by a very small rudder wherever the pilot wants to go. Likewise, the tongue is a small part of the body, but it makes great boasts. Consider what a great forest is set on fire by a small spark. The tongue also is a fire, a world of evil among the parts of the body. It corrupts the whole body, sets the whole course of one's life on fire, and is itself set on fire by hell. All kinds of animals, birds, reptiles, and sea creatures are being tamed and have been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. With the tongue we praise our Lord and Father, and with it we curse human beings who, may have, who have been made in God's likeness. Out of the same mouth come praise and cursing. My brothers and sisters, this should not be. Can both fresh water and salt water flow from the same spring? My brothers and sisters, can a fig tree bear olives or a grapevine bear figs? Neither can a salt spring produce fresh water. I just bring that up in reference to Claire McCaskill because uh, her allegations that uh, Donald Trump is in this for himself is it's ridiculous. And I say this as a businessman not that far in age from Donald Trump, and I'm not comparing myself to Donald Trump. I'm just saying I can relate. This man is risking his life and his fortune. He doesn't need to say to himself, I need to be president. I mean, this is what she's saying is his entire effort is purely narcissistic. That he has no care or concern about the American people when quite the contrary seems to Professor Penn to be the truth. He seems to be risking his life. I mean, if you're a narcissist, right, are you really going to risk your life when you already got two billion bucks and a family and endless opportunities in front of you? If you're a narcissist, you don't risk your life. That's the sine qua non of narcissism. To be selfless, to be willing to lay down your life, that's the opposite of narcissism. 
So the tongue, the evil of the tongue that we saw broadcast on MSNBC, where hundreds of thousands of people, maybe millions of people, see that allegation. And, you know, this is an, an encouragement for me. I mean, how do you talk about political tomfoolery and politicians that when they speak, they lie without cursing them? This is a challenge. And that's why I was talking about in the last episode, what can we do to bring people together and not tear them apart? So it's, it's a challenge for me to talk about uh, my state senator in Senate District 45 here in Minnesota, Dr. Kelly Morrison, who is now going to run for the congressional seat held by Representative Dean Phillips, who's had the audacity to declare a candidacy for president in the Democrat Party. He's seeking to unseat President Biden. And, oh, the Democrats don't like that kind of thing. When you step out of line there, <clears throat> when you make a decision that you're going to jump ahead, they go after you. So right away, Kelly Morrison, Dr. Kelly Morrison, the doctor, the Dr. Kelly Morrison jumped up and said she's running for Dean's seat. And Dean Phillips, and I say Dean, I mean, I'm not friends with him, but I know him. Uh, I've met him, and I've got friends of mine that are very close to him. And I'm not saying he's a good guy or a bad guy. I'm just saying he's running against Biden, and they're getting rid of him. He is going to be neutralized because he's broken the party discipline. And uh, so we've got here an SD45 here in Minnesota. Now Kelly Morrison is running to be the national congressional representative from what's called Congressional District 3 here in Minnesota, which up until 2018 had been a Republican district for a very long time. And we had a um, representative here. His name was Eric Paulson. And he was defeated by Dean Phillips. And how did that happen? Because he trash-talked Donald Trump, a la, very similar to, ex-Senator Claire McCaskill. And that fractured the Republican Party here in Congressional District 3. And it, it made the Republican Party neutered because we have an establishment here of Republicans who are the Nikki Haley neocon types or the Chris Christie neocon types that believe in empire, low taxes, low regulation, and it's all about me. The real kind of narcissist, right? And then the America Firsters that are coming up in this area, and they're just beating these people down because they control all the levers of power. So this Kelly Morrison has a very good chance to become the next congressperson from CD3 here in Minnesota, which is a very critical district. And I just want to say that the doctor's great claim to fame is she sponsored and passed the uh, abortion rights legislation that came into law right after the Democrat got full control of Minnesota. And I, you know, there's some interesting parts of this law. For example, a mother can choose to abort her baby while she's in labor. That's quite a, quite a departure from times gone by. Uh, these are the amendments that the Republicans proposed to Dr. Kelly Morrison's legislation that were rejected. 
allowing mothers to provide anesthesia to the baby. No good. Requiring providing information to minors regarding abortion and sterilization. Out. Remove the right to sterilization from the bill. Out. Preventing sterilization of minors when there is evidence of sex trafficking. Out. Removing reference to the Minnesota Constitution. Out. Removing the word fundamental. Out. Clarifying that reproductive health care does not include contacting a gestational surrogate. Out. Prohibiting abortion at 20 weeks. Out. Prohibiting abortion at 25 weeks. Out. Prohibiting abortion at 32 weeks. Out. Prohibiting abortion at 36 weeks. Out. Prohibiting partial birth abortions. Out. Prohibiting abortions when a woman is in active labor. Out. I mean, I could go on and on because there's another similar length of proposed amendments to this legislation that were rejected. So Kelly Morrison's thing is that the Congress needs a doctor. A doctor. The doc, we need more doctors. We need more scientists. And because she's an OBG, you know, a, a woman's health doctor, a woman's health, woman's health, she feels she's got a great opportunity and she's being supported by all the physicians in Minnesota and she's got tremendous support. And she's working on another bill before she gets the Congress, which is the euthanasia bill. And what's that? That's, and I'm going to speak personally because I'm old, older. If I got a disease and I was suffering, I would have the right to go to my doctor and say I'm suffering. The doctor might suggest to me, hey, maybe we could end your suffering. This would be taking the previous, I don't know, 5,000 years of God has dominion over life and death and putting it in the hands of science because, after all, belief in God is the opiate of the masses. We're going to talk a little bit about that today. What is an open society, which is something that we all hear about but we don't think about? What is the open society? So we're going to move along. We're behind. Might go over a little bit today. i got so much to say, don't even know where to go next. But let's talk about bewildering bewildering. You know, there's a country called the Netherlands, also known as Holland. There's two districts in the Netherlands that are the Holland districts, or like their states, but Holland is a, an acronym for the whole country. It's the Netherlands, and Amsterdam is the capital, and The Hague is there, and The Hague is the seat of the International Criminal Court. This is a country that's been at the center of the European Union project, it was occupied by the Germans under force of arms in 1940. It is a country that has a deep uh, liberal to do. I mean, this is a liberal country, okay? I mean, it has been. If you go back and look, about a year ago, they passed legislation, the previous government, because they were just defeated, which we're going to talk about next. They passed legislation, guess what? Ending the family farm. Ending the family farm. And there was protests with thousands of tractors. These farms, because it's a this is an agricultural country with large agricultural exports, and they were entering it because you know, as we know, family agriculture is bad for the earth. It's bad, you know. Natural farming, organic farm. If it's farming that's per- pursued by a family, its consumption of energy and its pollution is so bad for the earth. We've got to end agriculture, and it's agriculture, culture, a culture, a culture, like Christianity is a culture. 
like America has a culture, agriculture, agriculture. We have to end that culture and start a new culture, which would be scientifically created artificial food products, which take less energy and pollute less because we love the earth so much. And these people got out in protest. They self-governed. And you know why? Because they were going to have their livelihoods and their cultures stripped from them. And they went out into the streets in tractors. I'm going to tell you, when a John Deere hits the, the pavement with, you know, eight big-ass 42-inch tractor tires on the back end, that stops traffic. And they stopped traffic there in the Netherlands. And they elected something completely different. Play this piece, this piece Elliot, please, on what Wilders winning in, uh, in now, the Netherlands. Votes in the general election in the Netherlands are still being counted, but it seems that the veteran anti-Islam politician Gert Wilders has led his PVV party to the largest share of the vote. PVV, which translates into English as freedom, is said to take around 35 of the 150 seats. That won't be enough to govern alone, and several other parties have said they won't enter a coalition with the far-right Mr. Wilders. He says the people want him to be prime minister. The voters have spoken. The voters have determined that the PVV will become the largest party by far. It would be very undemocratic. And so I assume that it will not happen that voters will be sidelined. Voters wouldn't accept that either. They'd find it terrible. I think we need to see where the common ground is, and then we need to do business with each other. Because we have to help the Netherlands move forwards. The hope of so many people is that things must change in the Netherlands, that the influx of asylum seekers will be limited, that ordinary Dutch people will have more money in their pockets again, that homes will go back to the Dutch, that the Dutch will be put in the first place again. Well, we can go live now to our correspondent, Anna Holligan in The Hague. And Anna, let's just take a step back and take stock of this moment. Just how significant is this result for the Netherlands? Seismic, and there's no doubt the tremors will be felt in Brussels this morning. This result is a headache. If he actually manages to go ahead and become prime minister to convince enough parties to work with him in coalition, it will be an absolute nightmare for the European Union. Uh, this is the prime minister's office just behind me here in the Dutch Parliament. The big question is who will be occupying it in a few months' time? That's as long as it could take in order to negotiate a new government. Um, you heard Geert Wilders there talk about some of the issues that have really dominated this campaign. So, for example, migration, but talked about in pragmatic rather than inflammatory terms, the cost of living crisis, a new term, Bestan Zekerheide, the security of existence, the shortage of affordable homes. And actually, uh, during the last few days, his party surged in the polls. And if you are not familiar with Geert Wilders, he's a radical politician. He's been in Parliament for around 25 years. 
He's anti-Islam, anti-immigration, but we've already had a kind of indication that he may be prepared to compromise in order to convince enough parties to go into coalition with him. And you mentioned 35 seats there. We've, we've just had an update. It's looking as though he has managed to secure 37 seats in Parliament, about 2.3 million votes. That, to put it in context, is more than the, the VVD, the Conservative Liberal Party of Mark Rutte, secured in the last two elections. So uh, to say seismic is perhaps even an understatement here. Yes, Anna, and you know a, a big challenge for the other parties in the Netherlands because, as you mentioned there, they've shunned uh, Mr. Wilders over the years, over the decades. They now have to decide whether to support him in forming a government um, because he does have the popular vote, it seems. Exactly, as you say, Catherine. So that will be the real challenge now because, as Geert Wilders said last night, he can no longer be isolated, he can no longer be ignored. And if the other mainstream parties do that, they will once again be accused of ignoring the very disenfranchised, marginalised people who voted for him in the first place. There's been a huge crisis of trust in Dutch politics. He has promised to restore that. And what's really telling is that all of the coalition parties lost votes. This is a huge punishment for the coalition, whereas the, the populist parties, they surged. So not just Geert Wilders' PVV Freedom Party, but also a newly formed new social contract party led by Peter Omzicht. Uh, he managed to secure, it looks like, around 20 seats. Uh, and then on the other side of the political spectrum, reflecting a polarised society, uh, we have the Green Left Labour Alliance led by Franz Timmermans, who gave up a European Commission job to come back and lead this bloc, has also performed well. Uh, to explain what happens next, if Geert Wilders is unsuccessful in forming a new coalition, then the responsibility will fall to the next biggest party, which is looking like the Green Left Labour Alliance. Thank you. Well, there's, you know, they were a little freaked out there at the BBC. That would be the Crown's in-house uh, news organization, the BBC, British Broadcasting Corporation, owned by the government. Freaked out. Why? Oh, the populist won. A Donald Trump-like character has won. Okay. Well, we're going to see the jury's out. But let's uh, let's look at all, you know, all the warp and warp. This is just entertainment. It's not as good as Richard Pryor, but boy, this is entertaining. Play this next piece. The so-called Dutch Donald Trump could now become his country's leader, winning elections based on a campaign on anti-immigration and anti-Islam polemics. The biggest threats to our survival today and the threats to our freedom are the European Union, mass immigration, and this terrible Islamic ideology of submission and violence. A dark day for many of the country's residents who come from a non-Western background. I was just telling people here that this is like my 9-11. I will never forget this evening, November 22, 2023. Of course I'm shocked. I'm still in shock. I think my friends and family are in shock as well. Geert Wilder's PVV party's program states the Netherlands is not an Islamic country. There should be no Islamic schools, no Qurans, no mosques, and a ban on Islamic headscarves in government buildings. If the PVV program is implemented, the livelihood and security of Muslims will no longer be assured. That means that we as Muslims cannot live and cannot practice our prayer, our religion, 
We cannot pass that on to our children. Wilder and his party have never been in government. Party leaders will meet on Friday to discuss coalition possibilities. Well, that's uh, quite interesting. Let's dial it back a little bit. You know, there is a policy in the world, maybe just the way the system works. It might not even be a policy. I, you know, I think there's a policy. I've read it. But there is a mass migration going on in the world, mass. Europe is being flooded by emigres from the Middle East. The United States is being flooded by emigres from Central and South America, but many other countries. It's easy for Gert Wilders to identify Islam as the problem because that is the bulk of the population that has emigrated into the country. Now I'll tell you a little story. Back in the days when I was riding high, I took my uh, family to Paris for a vacation. Didn't want to go. I don't like vacationing, which is another problem around the campfire. But, you know, got to keep peace in the camp, so off we went to uh, Paris. Had a good time, and uh, Mrs. Professor Penn said, uh, let's go to the flea market. And I said, come on. We're here in Paris. Why are we going to the flea? Oh, it's cool. We got to check it out. I go, you know, when you say flea market, I get a little concerned. You know, we had little kids at the time. And um, we went off to the flea market because, you know, trying to keep peace in the, in the camp, right? And um, the cab driver, about six blocks away from the flea market, stopped the cab and said, get out. And I looked, I said, do you think that we're getting a message here? Do you think we're getting a message? Oh, no, this is going to be cool. So off we walked into the flea market, and it was like walking into another country. And there was not a lot of uh, touristas there. It was another, it was another culture. And, you know, I, Professor Penn is uh, obviously Jewish. A lot of people were staring at me. And sometimes when I see the red in the eyes, oh, I know we're just a a hair's breadth away from getting down. And I said, I think I am leaving because I can see this is going to end up being no good. So if you want me to protect you, you will follow me out of here right now or I will take the kids and you will be on your own. I mean, why fight? I don't fight with people. That's dumb. I just do what I think is right and we'll talk about it afterwards. What I'm saying is I have the personal experience of being in an immigrant population that is both radicalized and without any intention to assimilate into the European culture. Now, I'm not saying that's the whole population of immigrants, but there is a population there that is like that, and they are violent, and they are dangerous. And the facts bear that out if you take a look at the history. And it's leading to a backlash against Muslims in those countries because that's the predominant uh, factor that defines that group of immigrants. Now, we have the same thing here in this country, and it's bringing about a backlash, and that's part of the America First movement, and it's part of the Trump movement, and we're going to have to sort this out. This is not simple stuff. And it goes far beyond uh, any politics we've seen before. Let's listen to Gert on... Turkey. 
I rather uh, would have um, no Koran um, at all, as we, um, in Holland at least. I would, if I would become the Prime Minister of the Netherlands next year, after I would win the elections, close the Dutch borders for immigrants from Islamic countries immediately. The Netherlands' anti-Islam, anti-EU and anti-immigrant populist Heert Wilders has won a huge victory in the general election and is likely to become the country's first far-right Prime Minister. I'm very proud, um, um, at the same time, it uh, comes with a lot of responsibility. Um, people expect our agenda of hope, uh, tougher asylum and immigration policy. Nicknamed Dutch Trump for his distinctive dyed hair and bold rhetoric, Wilder's Party for Freedom has secured 37 seats in the 150-seat parliament, marking its biggest success in the party's 17-year history. We would hold a referendum in the Netherlands for what we call a Nexit, the Dutch leaving, in order to be able to toughen up our immigration policies. It cannot be done and it will not be done by Brussels and the European Union, you have to become a sovereign nation again in order to do that. Wilders will begin seeking coalition partners to secure a majority in Parliament. However, this will be tough as none of the parties he could liaise with share his anti-EU stance. He has also repeatedly said the Netherlands should stop providing arms to Ukraine, as the country needs the weapons to be able to defend itself. Though he pledged to be Prime Minister for everyone, his election manifesto advocates the de-Islamization of the Netherlands, the country's exit from the EU, a complete halt to asylum seeker intake and migrant pushbacks at Dutch borders. Wilders has been at the center of many controversies and has drawn condemnation for over a decade due to his anti-Islam rhetoric. In 2007, he compared the Quran to Adolf Hitler's Mein Kampf and also advocated to levy a tax on those wanting to wear the Muslim headscarf worn by some woman. In 2009, he was banned from entering the UK, proposing a threat to community harmony and therefore public security due to his controversial film Fitna. In 2018 and 2019, he announced the Prophet Muhammad cartoon contest, but never followed through. Wilder's victory was welcomed by several far-right European leaders. It is the latest in a series of elections that are changing the European political landscape. From Slovakia and Spain to Germany and Poland, populist and far-right parties have succeeded in some EU member nations and failed in others. Well, I got the wrong clip there, I'm sorry. Uh... I'll have to go find it and see if I can bring it back in the future. He actually looked at Turkey and said, you all want to be part of Europe? It ain't going to happen. So we've got this big pushback here. Politics is messy. I'm not going to redact and comment on every comment that I heard. This is change. This is big change. This is the, un the beginning of the unwinding of the post-World War II Democrat liberal order. And it's unwinding in Europe right before our eyes. And now we're just less than a year away from our elections here in the United States. Well, it's going to be an interesting 2024 as we enter December. Battle lines have been drawn. Battle lines have been drawn. Can you play this clip? Because now we're going to talk about, because, you know, the battle lines are there. That's why we're getting this, this pushback and this blowback. And, you know, I'm going to just say to my YouTube overlords, we're supposed to be able to talk about politics now on YouTube. I'm not giving any medical advice. I'm not running down any medical advice. I'm not taking any positions of anti-immigration or pro-immigration. I'm showing the audience the various political news that is dominating our current world. So to the YouTube overlords, come on. This is the news. Let's play this piece from Legrand. You're introducing the electronic euro. 
as I know. Yeah. So yeah. how can I, um, how can switching to an electronic currency help? Now we have in Europe this threshold above 1,000 euros, you cannot pay cash. If you do, you're on the gray market. So you take mm -hmm. your risk. You get caught, you are fined, or you go in jail. But, you know, the, the, the digital euro is going to have a limited amount of control. There will be control, you're right. You're completely right. Mm -hmm. We are considering whether for very small amounts, you know, anything that is around 300, 400 euros, we could have a mechanism where there is zero control. But that could be dangerous. The terrorist attacks on France uh, back uh, 10 years ago were entirely financed by those very small anonymous credit cards that you can recharge in total anonymity. Well, that's just great, isn't it? Isn't that fantastic? I have to give up my financial freedom because I'm afraid. My security is threatened. And she's a very good saleswoman. Very good. Sa this woman is very important in European politics and in world politics. And here's what she's selling. Islamic terrorists will fund their terrorist activities with very small amounts of euros. Therefore, we have to control all the currency to protect we the people. Isn't that nice of her? Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Very interesting. And here, there's ex-Prime Minister of Britain, Tony Blair. He's, we got terrorism and we got health. You know, these people want to protect me. Oh, I'm so happy that these people have my safety and my well-being at the center of their political philosophy. Let's play Tony Blair. The technology and the digital infrastructure, I just want to emphasize how important I think that is. Because in the end, you... you you, you need the data. You need to know who's been vaccinated and who hasn't been. Some of the vaccines that will come on down the line will be multiple. There'll be multiple shots. So you've got to have, for, for reasons to do with the healthcare more generally, but certainly for uh, a pandemic or for, um, for, for vaccines, you've got to have a proper digital infrastructure. And many countries don't have that. In fact, most countries don't have that. Oh, thank you. Thank you, Prime Minister Blair. Thank you so much for caring about me so much. I feel so warm. You know, uh, I said when we did that well-received podcast on Tuesday night, humor. You know, this stuff is not humorous. We're try I'm trying to make light of it because, of course, I want to get the episode up. We're going to continue to interject great cultural icons and, and things that make us laugh and give us joy because we need that as a juxtaposition to our leadership that is so concerned for my well-being. I'm so warmed by this. And so are some of our American politicians. Place Senator Ron Johnson's response to this. It's just extraordinary to me that, uh, you know, the government was working with social media to amplify lies and suppress truth and has been doing so repeatedly. Why can't the American people know that there were side effects with the vaccine? This is all pre-planned by an elite group of people. That's what I'm talking about. Event 201 that occurred in late 2019 prior to the rest of us knowing about this pandemic. Again, yeah. you know, th this is very concerning in terms of what has happened, what is happening, uh, what continues to be planned for our loss of freedom. Um, mm -hmm. Again, it needs to be exposed, but unfortunately, there, there are very few people, even in Congress, that are willing to take a look at this. 
Uh, they, they all push the vaccine. Uh, they don't want to you know, be, be made aware of the fact that the vaccines might have caused injuries, might have caused death. Uh, you know, so, so many people just simply don't want to admit they were wrong and they're going to do everything right. they can to make sure that they're not proven wrong. We're, well, we're up against people, a very powerful group of people here, Maria. We need the truth to be exposed. We need more Americans to listen to the truth, to be exposed to the truth, to pull their heads out of the sand, quite honestly, open up their eyes and understand what is happening in this country. We are going down a very dangerous path, but as a path is being laid out and planned by an elite group of people that want to take total control over our lives. And that's what they're doing bit by bit. They do it by increasing ma you know, massive government spending, increasing the size of government, uh, take over of the WHO. These amendments that are coming up uh, that are going to be voted on in 2024 on the WHO are frightening, and they, they really risk taking away all of our sovereignty. Uh, people have to awake, awaken to the dangers of the moment. You know, I'm just wondering if this episode is even going to make it up. This is the news now, okay? This is a U.S. senator. We can't be censoring U.S. senators, can we? This isn't Professor Penn saying this. This is a sitting U.S. senator. And it brings to mind, here in Minneapolis, our police, our policing, our police are there to protect us, right? Right? You know, I just had one of my warehouses robbed just past weekend. It's great. Phone call comes middle of the night. Alarm company calls and says, oh, you're getting robbed. We're sending the police. The police go. We've inspected. There's no robbery. Your building is secure. Your contents are secure. Well, we're going to go check it out anyhow in the middle of the night. You know what we found? Robbers taking out big volumes, stealing the police. So they, they, oh, boy, they were so helpful in protecting the property of Tiregat. No, nah, they, you know, they missed it. Somehow they missed those doors being broken and that truck lined up at the loading dock and all those people standing around stealing my goods. They missed it. Hey, accidents happen. I mean, after all, why would you want to take a bullet over some tires? I get it. I get, And this is nothing new. I remember one time I was getting robbed, and I went down there myself, you know, with a, uh, let's just say I, I came prepared for whatever I found. And guess who went to jail? Guess who got popped, got, got arrested? That would be me. Because, you know, I was dressed in, this is a long time ago, I was in cutoffs and a T-shirt, and I had longer hair, and it was very black in those days. They said, oh, good enough, this guy's the problem. Thanks a lot, guys. You know, <clears throat> we have this thing in the conservative, the neocon. I heard something from, uh, I read something he called uh, one of our, well, one of our free people commentators, Royce White, he calls them neococks. You know, they have this real desire to depend on the government to take care of them. They want the government to take care of them. You know, can't fix stupid. We're a self-governing nation. Self-governing. We're going to talk a lot about that in the time we have left today. We have to depend on ourselves to take care of our family's needs for food, for shelter, 
for security, for safety. When we reclaim our own power, we disempower the people who want to take care of us because we're saying, hey, we're babies. We can't take care of ourselves. So, of course, we're going to get people that say, hey, if you can't take care of yourself, let us take care of you. Trust us. Just trust us. Just give us all your money. Give us all your freedom. And in exchange for that, porn and universal basic income and health care and whatever it is, you, you know, digital delights, unparalleled. No, no, no. It's not working for me. You have to make up your own decision, your own mind about this. But I want to reclaim. I want to grow my own food. I want to take care of my own health. I'm not saying anybody, I mean, help up YouTube. I am not saying don't listen to the doctor. I'm saying between my visits to the doctor, I want to rely on myself for my well-being in between hearing what my doctor wants me to do. You know, I might have to come in next time with about 20 doctor jokes. Rodney Dangerfield, someone put in the live chat, Rodney Dangerfield, maybe we'll play some of his humor. Dr. Vinny Boombots. I mean, this, this, this dialogue goes back a long way. It's not, these are not new ideas. We just have not stood up and taken care of ourselves, so those that want to take care of us have proliferated. Let's pop up one of my favorites. Christian Freeland, whose grandfather was a Nazi in the Ukraine, and she is a uh, managing executive director of the World Economic Forum, while she's the number two politician in Canada. What a pedigree. Let's play her. She's great. Does Our capitalist democracy still work? Let's listen to her. Time of tranquility is over. And but can we, we are start it again? In an age Let's just start out here. Our time of tranquility is over. That's very similar to Klaus Schwab saying, we're going to live in an angrier world. Do you see the similarity? Because she's on his board of directors. Let's continue. Let's try Our it time of tranquility is over. And we are living in an age of change. We're living through what President Biden, on a visit to my country in March, called an inflection point, a time of transformation, he said, that comes once every five or six generations. Now, like it or not, you are graduating into that inflection point. What is this inflection point? What is this upheaval which is going to the roots of humanity itself? There are many ways to describe this transformational moment, but I think they all come down to one fundamental question. Does capitalist democracy still work? That's the question being posed around kitchen tables in my country and this one. Can you stop As it, please? parents wonder... I have a question for you. You can answer in the live chat. Is a question around your kitchen table, does a capitalist democracy still work? Are you thinking about that question, Elliot? Does that come up at your table? Oh, he does. Great. Does it still work? Oh, that's great. I'll be looking forward to the live chat on this one. Please continue. If our children can count on capitalist democracy's essential promise of a future more prosperous than our present, it is the question being posed by our shrinking glaciers and our warming oceans, which are asking us, wordlessly but emphatically, 
if democratic societies can rise to the existential challenge of climate change. I have a suggestion for you. If you're living on the seashore, enjoy it and be willing and ready to move. <laughs> this thing is hilarious. To me, it's hilarious. I got to get a kick out of this. But this woman is saying it all right there. Go back and play it again. She's saying capitalism, and it has all kinds of problems with it. I get that. But the biggest problem with capitalism is it hasn't been capitalism for 30, 40 years. It has the appearance of capitalism. In fact, there are going to be those that say there hasn't been capitalism since 1913. Go back and look at the uh, Jekyll Island piece. We have a, a group of uh, technocrats called the Federal Reserve, governors, that actually manage our economy no different than they managed it in the Soviet Union or any other communist country. So we kind of have a, what I would call a mixed economy. And when I say it's mixed, as an independent businessman, depending on a capitalist structure, I'm going to tell you that the walls are closing in on guys like me, and we need your help to stay in business. In fact, that's a good point. That's a good segue for me to say, please go to the freepeopleradio.com store and support the, the broadcast. Thank you very much for doing so. And we're going to talk about Target here in a minute. But what, 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 what Christian Freeland is saying is that capitalist democracy doesn't work because the glaciers are screaming out to us as if this science is settled and that, you know, human beings are destroying the planet. And we're going to spend a lot of time on this in the weeks to come. We love the earth so much, we hate people. And, you know, Chris just got the whole group of graduates there, and their heads are bobbing up and down, because after the four years of communist indoctrination, what she's saying sounds completely reasonable to them. And Elliot, you know, I wish he had his, he's not ready for the microphone. He was kind of agreeing with this. He's not ready to step out, but he's 24 years old, so he's gotten a good dose of brainwashing. I come from a different era. I believe in freedom. I am 100% committed to freedom. Freedom is messy. A lot of conflict with freedom. You know, totalitarian states, a lot less freedom, because guess what? <laughs> when you're under someone's control and you cause trouble, you disappear. Democracies are messy, hard to manage. Republics are messy, hard to manage. Great, I don't want to be managed, and I also don't want to manage anybody around me. Two-way street in Professor Penn's world, don't tread on me, and I won't tread on you. In fact, I'm such a terrible people manager in my company. My, 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 my employees stand around, they go, hey, boss, we don't get it. And I look at them and say, what do you mean you don't get it? Can't you figure out what to do? No. What? Because in my generation, we figured out what to do, and when we were wrong, at least we did something. We struck out in a direction. I got people now, if I don't tell them what to do, they don't do anything. I don't agree with this. We are self-governing, sentient beings, all of us, all of us. Let us not be dumbed down into a cattle-like status where we're managed. I don't want to be managed. I do not want to be managed. I want to self-govern. Precinctstrategy.com. One day a year, be a delegate, self-govern. I'm, I'm going to get a T-shirt out of this one. If you're not a delegate, you don't vote, and they're killing you, don't complain. Take your death like a, like, well, I can't even say that. 
like a human. We're not going to say take like a man because they're going to kill the women too. We're going to talk a lot about this because, you know, we got too many people on the planet. All right, so there are people that are fighting back. We played uh, Ron Johnson. Let's, Senator Ron Johnson, let's play a bit from Archbishop Vigano, who is a very big critic of the Pope and of the way things are working spiritually on our planet. This guy's famous. Maybe you don't know him. Check him out. Vigano, please go. Those who do not adapt to this fourth industrial revolution will find themselves ousted and will lose. They will lose everything, including their freedom. In short, Klaus Schwab is threatening the head of government of the 20 most industrialized nations in the world to carry out the programmatic points of the Great Reset in their nation. This goes far beyond the pandemic. It is a global coup d'etat against which it is essential that people rise up and that the still healthy organ of state start an international juridical process. The threat is imminent and serious. Since the World Economic Forum is capable of carrying out its subversive project, and those who govern nations have all become either enslaved or blackmailed by this international mafia. In the light of these statements, and those of others no less delusional than Yuval Noah Harari Schwab's advisor, we understand how the pandemic first served as a trial balloon for imposing controls, coercive measures, curtailing individual freedoms, and increasing unemployment and poverty. The new step will, will have to be carried out by means of economic and energy, energy crisis, which are instrumental to the establishment of a synarchic government in the hands of the global elite. Cardinal, uh, Archbishop, Archbishop Vigano, if you're Catholic and you don't know who he is, check him out. If you're interested in what's going on in the world, check him out. This is a leading voice for faith and freedom. And I'm watching all the blowback now against Millet in Argentina, that he's going to be a stooge and a puppet of the globalists. That well, might be true. But he issued a statement this morning. The cent, the closing, the closing of the Central Bank of Argentina is non-negotiable. The closing of the Central Bank of Argentina is non-negotiable. That's kind of a populist statement, isn't it? Wouldn't that be cool if uh, we had a president here that said, "Up, oh, Federal Reserve, it's over." and he had the votes in the Congress to get it done, wow, we'd be entering a brave new world of freedom. These are battle lines. This segment is battle lines. We're, we've got two, two, two fronts here. We've got the communist globalist control front and the previous regime of religion and faith and freedom, and these two ideologies are 
full blast combat. Now, some people call it the battle between good and evil. Let's just study these ideologies. It's everywhere. And I'm going to start to make a special emphasis on Mexico. Why Mexico? We have a border with Mexico. Mexico gets almost no press in the United States, like it doesn't exist. Actually, it's a very interesting country, and the same battle lines are being drawn there. Let me just take a second before we move on. There's going to be a presidential election, a very critical presidential election, coming up in the spring of 2024 in Mexico. Mexico is now governed by a communist, Obrador, and his party, the Moreno Party. And he, in Mexico, you can only serve a six-year term as president. Then you're going to the bench permanently. So Obrador has nominated a puppet named Claudia, who's actually married to the cartels. Her husband works for the cartels as his new champion to carry on his tradition. And then there's a woman that came up out of the people. Her name is Sochi. And she has the support of the the populists. And there's three parties in Mexico. There's Moreno and there's PRI and PAN. These, these groups have never gotten along with each other, but the PRI, which governed Mexico for about 60 years and then lost, and the PAN, which is the, the right, the kind of the Trump people, allegedly, they formed a coalition to back Sochi. So we've got a real knockdown drag out just south of the border. <clears throat> Excuse me. This battle line between globalism and nationalism, between totalitarian, scientific, technocratic control, and families and faith, it's everywhere. It's going to define everything. It's going to make the previous left-right thing moot because we got people in the in the right here in the Republican Party of Minnesota that don't believe in God and believe in science and believe that there should be totalitarian control of people like Professor Penn. They're really not Republicans. They're really, they're really not. Well, we have to define what the Republican Party is. As I said, I got a lot to say today. I'm not going to be able to get it all out. We're going to get out of the weeds and move on. But you can see there's a lot on my mind, and I want there to be a lot on all of our minds because we got to understand what this game is. So I thought I would drive back right to the rut of what's going on because this is a battle of ideas. The open society. Can you play this clip of, uh, oh, you're going to like this. <laughs> the live chat's about to light up. Hillary Clinton and George Soros. We have been given an extraordinary, we have been given an extraordinary blessing. And at this moment in time, our country needs us. And we need people like George Soros, who is fearless and willing to step up when it counts. So please join me in welcoming George Soros. Very, very proud to be introduced by Hillary. I've seen her in operation. I have great, great admiration for her. I see her deliver a speech in Davos about open society. 
that explain the ideas better than anybody else that I've heard. I've seen her uh, visit Central Asia, where I have foundations, and she was really very effective, uh, more effective than most of our statesmen. And I think she hit the nail on the head uh, um, when she said that there are people who have never been involved in a very active way in electoral po uh, uh, politics who now feel uh, uh, the need to do so. And I stand here before you as such a person. Uh, it is the first time that I feel that I need to stand up and do something really uh, in, uh, and become really engaged um, in the electoral process in, in this country. In, in my foundations, uh, basically, I, uh, I have provided uh, financial support for people in those countries who believed in the idea of an open society. Getting down to it now, the Open Society Foundation. That is George Soros's international political arm. And you go look at the board of directors, everybody's a Soros or married into the Soros family. It's his own personal political action committee, and he funds it with billions of dollars annually. That clip was from 2004. If those of us that have a memory, Remember that, you know, George Bush, the junior, was the president, and the Republican Party had complete control of the levers of government. And it was not a Republican Party that I'm very fond of. These were the empire builders, the neocons, and the folks that robbed the money. But be that as it may, not to get caught in the weeds again about George Bush, because I think we should go back through these presidents and what they accomplished in their so short sojourns as our ruler, our elected ruler. Soros uh, had, held a conclave in 2005, right after they lost this 2004 election, and he brought together all of the top uh, Democrat donors that he could get into a room, and they made a battle plan, which we're living through today, which was unprecedented. They decided that they were going to use the law as a cudgel in elective politics. And they've done a sensational job of it. I mean, still in the Republican Party movement, uh, well, half the Republican Party's are, participants are in with George Soros. They completely be believe what he believes, and we're going to talk about that right, you know, just in a minute or two. But what, what this group of people did was they used the law to change election laws. They used the law to change the application of the law, they used the law, and they used funding to elect their people to prosecutors and, you know, district attorneys and attorney generals, as you well know. But there's the guy, and why is he doing this? What are we, what are we living through? What is the open society? And I had a, a, a re alleged Republican hanging around with me for a long time that loved the idea of the open society. What is the Open Society? Why is there an Open Society Foundation? 
Well, there's a, for those of us who are into the anti-Semite rant, that's cool. There was a Jewish family named Popper that gave birth to a son named Karl Popper. This goes back into the you know middle of the last century. They converted to Christianity, but you really can't take the Jew out of these people. Let's just say Karl Popper was a a cultural Jew whose family had become Christian. He wrote a book called The Open Society, and he drew a distinction between closed societies, that would be societies that have a creation myth and a faith in God, and that see human law and natural law as the same law, the religious. And he said, oh, that doesn't work. We have to have an open society. We have to have a society that is based on science and scientific inquiry and the results and benefits of scientific inquiry. The open society that Soros proposes and that Soros has funded in the world in which we live now is the, the flowering, the bringing forth of that open society idea that Popper codified in the middle of the last century is an anti-Christian philosophy, an anti-Jewish philosophy, quite frankly, an anti-Muslim philosophy. It's an anti-any cultural formation that has a set of absolutes that are related to a deity. What this group of people did, they said that there was a set of universal moral precepts that applied across all people and that we need to discover those moral precepts, and those precepts were independent of any religious hierarchy or structure. In other words, they created their own religious hierarchy. They just hid the, the deity part. The deity part is the intellect of man. They replaced man's submission to a supreme being with <clears throat> the intellect of man, you know, extreme narcissism, in my opinion. And these two forces, the open society idea and the church or the religious, have been in a battle for hundreds of years, and now we're coming to the moment where there's going to be a winner and a loser. That's why I play Richard Pryor, because we got young people like my producer, Elliot, 24 years old. He doesn't know who Richard Pryor is. You know, there's people that don't know who God is. Because God, like Richard Pryor, can be written out of culture, can be forgotten through education, through familial experience. So many of our young people, many of our older people, many people my age, because our, this is going back a long time, have lost their faith or never found faith. And they do not live their lives organized by a set of faithful principles like trying to put your tongue under some kind of scrutiny. Think before you talk. So this open society concept, this is what's driving two-thirds of the political operatives in our country. Just because someone's got an R after their name does not mean they're a Republican. We need to redefine, my opinion, Professor Penn's opinion, we need to redefine and clarify what it is to be a Republican. We're having a lot of trouble with that. 
people are saying American firsters, American nationalists, and then we're supposed to work in the Republican Party, which is really controlled by, you know, Ronna McDaniel and her group of national committee people. Like here in Minnesota, we got three open society Republicans. They do not believe in God. They believe in science and the scientific method and the outcome of science, which includes weaponry. Oh, there you go. Because what is the highest achievement of science? The highest achievement is killing each other. We have, through science, you know, it used to be you take a rock or the jawbone of an ass and slay your brother. Now we have an ICBM that can deliver multiple independent reentry vehicles, each armed with a nuclear weapon. It's the same concept. It's just lethal at an exponential level that is unquantifiable. In other words, maybe I could kill one person at a time, which kind of limits my depravity, doesn't it? If all I can do is kill one person with a rock, now I can get an AR-15, I can walk into a school and kill 60 people. Whoa, that's a real scientific achievement, isn't it? And, of course, the response on the left is, well, let's regulate it. Let's regulate it. Let's regulate the weapon. What about the thinking? What about the thinking? You know, a person who believes in God and is really, is really caught up, like I was reading the thing from James at the beginning of the podcast. You know, this is worth a reread, so please let me find it. Not many of you should become teachers, my fellow believers, because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. Well, we who profess faith believe that. Just professing faith. Why? Because we're making our lives responsible to the spiritual world. We're self-organizing. We're self-governing because we have a relationship with the spiritual world which organizes our behavior. Kind of hard to say you believe in God and then secretly go out, rob, steal, and kill. Doesn't work. That relationship with the spiritual creates the conditions for self-governance. If you want to rule people, just eliminate that connection to the supernatural by judging it a closed society. What's closed? Well, Ten Commandments. 10, which Christ reduced to two. Love the Lord your God with all your strength, all your soul, all your might, and treat love your neighbor as you want your neighbor to love you. Hey, once you got those two under your belt, you're self-governing. Self-governing. But then there'd be no jobs for these professors. We wouldn't need these people. I mean, where would the Warhawks go if there was no wars? right? Where would the war pigs go if there was no wars, if everybody became self-governing? You know, in, in my Professor Penn fantasy world, this could happen in an election cycle because we have this new technology of podcasting and this can spread out. So I'm asking you, please. You'll, and people like my content. I get great feedback. 
and thank you. And I work hard at it. This takes a lot of my energy, and I care about it. And I'm going to say again, I'm the best beneficiary because I got to up my game. I'm upping my spiritual commitment because I'm teaching, and I will be judged more strictly. And this is a big undertaking for me. And I want to thank you for working with me. I'm getting a great benefit. And I hope I have many years to do this with you, which means I'm going to get to refine my spiritual essence and my faith every single day, minute by minute. It's such a great blessing. But if you like the content, please spread it out and ask other people to join. Please leave comments. Please click the like button. Please subscribe because the algorithm does not work in my favor because I'm not doing trivial things. You know, the algorithm rewards the trivial. We're working on the difficult. So if we're going to spread this out and turn this into a political action community, which is what the goal is, I mean, the implicit underlying goal here is please become a delegate to a political party. Vet the candidates and vote for candidates, endorse candidates that care about my health and well-being and your health and well-being and the well-being of the American people. Not assholes that sit here and tell me that Turkey is cheaper this year than last year when we're paying $1.2 trillion in interest, which is going to who? Who's getting that interest? Those are the people that are in on it. Those are the people that like the system the way it is. I'm not getting any of that interest. In fact, if you remember, it says, neither a lender nor a borrower will be. Why do we have a debt society when we could have an equity society? Well, I don't know, like in five years. People say, impossible, impossible. Well, let me tell you, we're at the crossroads. We're at the crossroads. So let me say it again. You're not going to vote, and you're not going to be a delegate. When we're poor and we're imprisoned, please no complaining. Now is the time. Right now is the time to self-govern. So we've got the traditional 5,000 years of faith and self-governance in conflict with a new Enlightenment philosophy that removes God, exalts the human intellect, creates technocratic rulers who know better for me than I do. And we're going to talk about this in the podcast to come. Their number one concern is reducing the population. Isn't that nice? YouTube can't take it down because it's everywhere. Everywhere. We're going to play David Rockefeller talking about reducing population the Club of Rome talking about reducing population, the United Nations talking about reducing population, the United States government talking about reducing population. So what these folks are about is reducing population. They believe that life and death is within their dominion. And then we have an alternative view, which has become an archaic, that life and death is in the hands of God. So I just want to end by saying today, I'm going to take a little rant, a personal rant. I'm not giving any advice um, because, you know, if I give advice, we don't get the episode up. So I'm not giving any advice. 
just tell you a personal story. I mean, I, I have lived a life, and there's people that have suffered way more than me, but I've lived a life of suffering. Going back to when I was very young, and I think most of us have suffering. That's part of the human condition. How do we make sense of that? How do we make sense of our suffering? How do we make sense of the human condition? You know, below all this BS with the politics, that's what we're really doing here. We have two alternative visions of how to deal with the issue of human suffering. One path says human suffering is part of life. We do not understand God's plan that the sins of the parents are transmitted to future generations, even unto the third and fourth generation. But those that love God, their offspring will be blessed for a thousand generations. And that is believed to be, by the scientific group, magical thinking. What the scientific group says is, we must eliminate human suffering through scientific technique. So that's what we're dealing with here, how to deal with the issue of human suffering. If you remove free will in a spiritual life from the life of humanity, as Harari has proposed, he said, there's no more free will. Because in free will, I choose to enhance or decrease my suffering through my addiction or my Rejection of sin. People think, oh, that's a very archaic idea. Well, you get a little bit older, and you start looking back, you go, did I really need to do that? And I'm talking about staying fairly within the boundaries. I mean, if you killed 75 people, hey, you know. But I'm just talking about living a normal life. We do things that are not correct. That's why we read the James, and thanks to the viewer who who referenced James, so we could read it. We say things and we do things that are damaging to other people. It's terrible. And then we get addicted to all kinds of, or at least Professor Penn has been, addicted to all kinds of sin, which degrades my health and my well-being. And of course, I said, 1974, 73, Roe versus Wade. 74, I had a high school class of 1,104 people. In 74, like magic, every girl in my high school class was on the pill to regulate their menstrual period because, of course, the drug companies were pushing the pill on the doctors. It's a business, right? So the girls would come in for their well-being checkup before school went back, and the doctor would say, well, how's your period? Talking to 16-year-old girls. I don't know. What do you mean? Well, is, do you bleed? Yeah. Do you bleed a lot? Yeah. Oh, I got a pill for you. You won't have to be, it'll be much better for you. You won't have the cramps. You won't have the pain. Take the pill. And my entire high school was on the pill. That was 74. By 75, the whole high school had figured out that with the pill, there's no more pregnancy. And guess what happened in 76? That'd be called disco. <laughs> I have to laugh at myself because we thought this was normal. You know, my parents, they, were, they had fallen away from the faith. Nobody told me that this behavior was not correct. It, we go back and we watch Johnny Carson together. 
this kind of uh, unbridled sexual behavior was encouraged in media, in film, in personal life. And you know what? It's very undisciplined. It just is. It's just very undisciplined. And to put it into a juxtaposition, in the uh, ancient Chinese secret, there's actually a, a tantric yoga or a sexual yoga where you just don't do that. You just don't have an orgasm. Bad for your health. Well, guess what? It's also in the Bible. Don't spill your seed. And, you know, we come from a generation of seed spillers. So our thinking has been altered by science because before, previously, if you had sex, you'd probably have a baby, and, you know, out of wedlock, that was frowned on. Now it's not frowned on. In fact, the government has erected an entire infrastructure for women to have families without men. I mean, this thing just goes on and on and on. And that's just down the sexual. Now you can go down the food. You know, when I was young, there was virtually no people who were overweight. None. Everybody was a string bean. I mean, I'm talking about a string bean. And something happened there in the 60s, in the 70s. And by the time we got to the 80s, we had Weight Watchers and all kinds of, of uh, weight management programs, and people were getting very heavy. And, you know, why did that happen? What changed? What changed? What changed? Well, there was a very multifactorial change. Women went to work. They didn't cook. We had pre-prepared foods. The food industry became very not natural. People worked at desks instead of the fields. Their diets didn't change even though they weren't burning the calories. There's so many reasons why it changed. But now we're living in a culture that has a very high incidence of morbid obesity and obesity. And we know that obesity, and I don't think YouTube can get down on me for this, is very correlated to all kinds of cancers. It is very likely from current research, and I read the research. I mean, I'm not, you know, science is always changing. So I'm not saying it's definitive, but right now we're living in a scientific environment that identifies that being overweight is a great predictor of having a cancer or a heart disease. Yet people are very overweight. And we're getting heavier. My young producer, Elias, he's a string bean. I like that, you know. And, you know, I'm, I'm going to be 65 years old this year. I'm not heavy. And I work at it. I mean, because, I, I first of all, I enjoy moving. I still move a lot. I still spend a lot of time outdoors. I like to do physical things. I like that. Do you like to do physical things? Do you like to challenge yourself physically? Is that something that, you know, you know, is, is interesting to you? Because there's a lot of people that don't like to do that. And we have to create those. I mean, nobody needed a gym 100 years ago. Just cutting the wood so you could have a fire was good enough. Just chopping wood was all the exercise you needed. Have you ever chopped down a tree? You know, I have. 
I like playing with axes. It's cool. Very martial. I like it. We don't, but I'm not doing it very much anymore. We, we have to create other opportunities to be physical. So at the base of all this is human suffering. What can we do as self-governing Americans to reduce, modify, transform, go from one sufferer to another sufferer? Well, first of all, I view my suffering as a gift from God, number one. I don't reject it. Doesn't mean it feels good. It does not feel good. Last night, couldn't sleep, sweat the bed out because I got so much going on that's so challenging. <laughs> like I said in the last podcast, hello, darkness, my old friend. You know, you've come to hang out with me again. I'm going through one of those periods. But that's when I rely on my faith. So that's when I get stronger in my faith walk. I don't reject suffering. Because suffering is a gift. God corrects those that he loves. If you're not having any suffering, ooh, you better take a self-inventory on that deal. You might be a setup. So suffering is not to be rejected, yet the modern world rejects it. That's interesting, isn't it, for a starter? Number two, when I give over to doing things that are not about me but are about service to other people, even when I'm suffering, I feel better. I feel better. When I'm selfless, I'm less self-concerned. What that means is even if someone has a disease, a serious disease, possibly a, a terminal illness, when they are not self-concerned, when they're selfless, they have well-being. This is about the well-being of the people. Suffering is part of well-being in the traditional. In the modern, oh, there's no suffering. Suffering and well-being are mutually exclusive. I don't agree with that. I have found great well-being in suffering. This is, I'm not giving advice. I'm just making a personal statement. It's a podcast after all. I get to have a psychological process with you. So YouTube, please, just talking about my own life. Suffering has brought me well-being. Suffering has brought me knowledge. Suffering has brought me insight. Suffering has brought me faith. So I'm not going to reject my suffering. I'm going to embrace it. I'm going to pull it close to me because it's me. I'm not going to reject me because that creates a schism. If I have a schism, if I reject part of myself, if I push myself away, if I deny myself, if I'm not whole, if I'm partial, how am I enhancing my humanity? To enhance my humanity, I need to be whole. So I, I embrace my suffering. I look at it as an opportunity to be spiritually inclined. I accept I don't know what's coming next. I don't try to manage the future. I'm living in the present. I try to eat well. What does that mean for me? Well, it's different than what it means for you because we're all snowflakes. We are experiments. I experiment with what works for me. I don't read it in a book. I'm a test tube myself. I've been a test tube since I was putting stuff in my mouth when I was crawling. We're test tubes. Figure out. I figure out what's good for me, and then I try to develop the discipline 
to stick with it. And then I know things are going to change. So what's good for me today might not be good for me tomorrow. So I'm embracing suffering. I'm trying to eat well. And I spend as much time as I can outside, in the natural, doing physical things. I try to control my tongue. I try to create harmony around myself, not division. And that is my personal Dao or the way. Dao is the Chinese word, the Dao. The Dao. We spell it T A O. The Dao. That's my way. I embrace my suffering. I use it as an opportunity. I see it as an opportunity. I stay in the present. I try to eat as well as I can. I spend a lot of time outside doing physical things. And I try to bring harmony about which is selflessness. So I want to leave you with that. I hope you all know that, but I'm putting a marker down because there are young people that are struggling trying to understand what well-being is. And our politics is about the well-being of the people. So we want to be delegates and find those politicians that embrace their suffering. There's a lot of humility in suffering, right? A lot of humility. They bring about harmony in what they say and do. They promote policies that bring good food to the people, feed the people, and they're concerned about the well-being of our community. And if we are well, we will be able to recognize other people that are well and support them and bring them into positions of political power. And on that note, I want to wish you a great weekend. Get outside. Even if it's cold, I'll be outside. It's cold. Like it. I like the cold and I like the hot. It's good for me. Have a great weekend. Be well. We're going to follow up with Susan's, Susan's idea about talking about President Reagan and our presidents in the weeks to come. Great ideas in the live chat. Please leave comments. Please click that like, like button. Please help us build Free People Radio. And I didn't even talk about TireGet because I'm not self-concerned. We'll get to it in the future. Thank you very much for joining, and we appreciate you supporting Free People Radio very much.